So the headline of your piece is, What Was Hamas Thinking? Um, What was Hamas thinking? Like, what did you learn? Well, it's a complicated picture. Uh, You know, from from their perspective, what they outline is a long list of grievances. And then the next question is, well, so since none of these grievances are new, you know, the settlements, the treatment of Palestinian prisoners, the management of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, since none of these grievances are new, why now and why uh, when an enormous retaliation was very foreseeable? I think one of the more confounding factors was the fact that Hamas over the past several years had been trying to make accommodations with Israel. Some in Israel are even talking about a rapprochement. Um, They had been undertaking indirect negotiations with Israel through Qatar and through Egypt, through the United Nations, and basically trying to improve the living conditions in Gaza. And I think they had very much convinced the international community, including the Israelis, that this is what they were interested in. They were interested in calm in the Gaza Strip. And they still saw themselves as the vanguard of resistance, but they were promoting that more in the West Bank. And I think no one had expected that Hamas was going to go down this path. Those are my colleagues David Kirkpatrick and Adam Raskon. Earlier this week, they reported a story for The New Yorker in which they interviewed a public-facing senior official of Hamas, a man named Musa Abu Marzouk. He spoke about the rationale behind the October 7th attack on Israel, which some foreign policy experts have described as suicidal. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. I think... At the big picture level, from the Israeli perspective, Hamas had become committed to governance, to trying to improve the lives of the people in Gaza. And to do that, it was willing to engage in indirect but increasingly real negotiations with Israel. The Hamas perspective that we heard was, look, we tried coexistence. We tried working with you. It didn't work for us. So we have to fall back to the only thing that is left to us, which is violence. So that was the ultimate message that I think we took away from Abu Marzouk. Yeah, I mean, he he argued that this was all along their strategy. You know, they are a resistance movement and they were trying to sort of attain Palestinian rights through these different methods, whether it was a rapprochement with Israel, whether it was reconciliation with, you know, their rivals, the West Bank's ruling party, Fatah, um, and all those paths had failed. Was, uh, there, was there like a specific breaking point? Or was it just all of these things kind of accumulating over time? Yeah, when we, when we pressed him on that, he wasn't really able to give a specific breaking point. He would go through a litany of failures and of issues that, you know, had, hadn't turned out in their favor. And in some ways, I, you know, I, I think we walked away from this interview not necessarily knowing what that straw was that broke the camel's back certainly more enlightened as to what Hamas's perspective is and how they view these issues, but maybe not particularly convinced that he gave us the answer for why they, you know, decided to take this act because Israel's now planning to to invade by ground and they've stated that their goal is to dismantle Hamas's authority. Yeah, I mean, at the time of this recording, the death toll in Gaza is reported to be almost 3,000 people. Um, Israeli airstrikes have been pummeling the territory. I mean, how did 
Marzouk respond to the retaliation that we've seen from Israel? His answer was basically uh, the Palestinians in Gaza are ready to withstand any sacrifice in the interests of Palestinian independence. I'm not going to say that I find that particularly convincing. You know, it, it, Gaza is not run as a democracy. Gazans don't have an opportunity to decide their own foreign policy. So um, I'm not sure that's the case, but that was his position. Yeah, and you even talked to, like, I, we've, we've spoken to some Palestinians in Gaza before the interview, after the interview, uh, there are a number of Palestinians who I know in, in Gaza City who've now relocated to the southern part of the Gaza Strip because Israel has declared the northern part to be an evacuation zone. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to these people and some of them say, you know, I've, I've just had enough. I, I can't live here anymore. I, I'm friendly with an individual who lives sort of in the center of Gaza City, right next to the, the Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital. And his family is quite wealthy and owns a number of businesses. But he said, you know, I have some opportunities here, but this destruction, the death, the anxiety that you live with everywhere you go, I've, I've had enough. And he was saying, however I can get out of here, I'm going to do that at the first moment I can. So Marzouk told you that he learned the details of Hamas's attack on Israel at the same time that the rest of the world did, um, because within Hamas, he's a political leader, not a military leader, and these are separate groups. But he also intimated that he knew this attack had been in the works for years, even if he didn't know the precise timing. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how long this has maybe been planned for based on the reporting that you did, and also, just how we're supposed to think about culpability here. Like, is there really a, a separation here between these two groups, you know, mil military and political, or is it hard to make that divide? I mean, I think just logically, it's clear that there was a lot of planning that went into this. Uh, the number of forces that entered, how they pierced this high-tech Israeli border fence and just sort of how efficient they were in taking over different towns and, um, you know, some of the reporting that's done by other journalists in terms of how they were able to disable surveillance towers and communications and, you know, other things that enabled them to be as successful as they were. Um, in terms of the divide between the the military and the political branches of Hamas, the political branches historically, the the sort of the top leaders have lived abroad. Um, they're currently based in Qatar. Some are in Turkey. Hamas has some some leaders who spend time in Lebanon as well. And their role is more to raise money to um, build international relations with you know Hamas's various partners like Iran and Turkey and Qatar and, and some of these other places. Um, and the military folks are focused on building up an army in the Gaza Strip to fight Israel. But the sort of exact dynamic of that relationship is very murky. I think there are a few people that, that really understand how it plays out. But I think one of the things that makes it unique is that there is this division where the political leaders aren't maybe fully informed about what's going on within the military branch. I'm sure in part to prevent information from being leaked, Israel's obviously, you know, carrying out surveillance against their phones and you know, trying to get a sense of what's going on. Uh, but also, I think there's just a sort of di a divide between the two groups. You know, these folks who are living in, in Qatar are living at 
very, very nice hotels and, and uh, luxury apartments. They're flying uh, all around the world with bodyguards and going out to fancy meals. And these folks in Gaza are living under a blockade and under immense restrictions um, and experiencing the, the real injustices of the conflict. Um, so I think that also plays a role, too. I think there's a couple things going on. There's Part of it is a sort of strategic and deliberate ambiguity. I mean, Hamas would like to represent the political leaders as both totally in charge of policy and not necessarily in charge of policy. They want to be responsible for the actions of the military wing and not responsible. Some of that reflects just the practicalities of surveillance. The Hamas leadership, wherever they are, are going to be extensively spied on, not only by Israel, but probably all of their host countries. I'm sure that Qatar is doing its best to tap Abu Marzouk's phones. Um, and so it makes sense that they're not going to be informed about every decision. Uh, Abu Marzouk in particular is someone who has a PhD in engineering from an American university, has spent a lot of time here. If you were Hamas, you couldn't pick a better interlocutor with the West and the Western media. So perhaps he's in a sense a kind of a spokesman for the group. But that said, he's been involved in a leadership capacity from the beginning, since 1987. And uh, when he spoke to us, he did not in any way distance himself from responsibility uh, or support for the actions on uh, October 7th. There was one part in the piece where it seemed like he was kind of distancing Hamas fighters from responsibility for certain actions. I believe it's the part where you bring up the um, atrocities of the 7th. And, um, you know, I think there's a point where he basically says, well, that was those weren't Hamas fighters doing that. That was Palestinian militants and civilians who, you know, went through the hole that was breached in the security wall, which was really shocking to me that um, Hamas would blame civilians for these actions, especially since I feel like a lot of the rhetoric in the West has been about how it's important for people to think about the Palestinian civilians and how, you know, if this ground invasion does in fact happen, how civilians need to be evacuated, they need to be protected, that targeting civilians in particular, that that would be a, a war crime, essentially. I just found it interesting that you don't really have Hamas using the same rhetoric of innocent civilians that we're so used to seeing in the, in the West. What I thought was going on is he was rightly pointing out that after the Hamas fighters came in, after the Hamas uh, troops, as it were, breached the wall and stormed in, other Palestinians did follow. Mm -hmm. And what he was trying to do is distance the Hamas fighters, their fighting force, from the worst atrocities. And I should say that when Adam and I took stock of what he was saying, we did not find that credible. Uh, the evidence is that the Hamas fighters, as well as the people who followed them, were guilty of all kinds of things. And so we offered the reader a flavor of his denials, but limited them. I think he would have had a lot more to say uh, about who else was responsible for what other violence and in a way that sought to whitewash the culpability of the Hamas fighters themselves. Uh, even even Hamas, even a militant group that the U.S. has long ago designated as a terrorist organization, is sensitive to allegations of war crimes on this scale, and they're doing their best to try to deflect those. I understand the sort of desire, um, you know, on the part of Hamas to to whitewash some of this stuff and to kind of point the finger away from, from their fighters. Um, but it seems like pointing that finger to the civilians can only result in just more civilian deaths. 
Is it to their advantage, I guess, for like the American people or for Israel to not really distinguish between Hamas fighter and Palestinian civilian? Are they trying to make those borders murkier? Well, I don't want to be arguing his case for him or Hamas's case for Hamas. But even if there were a handful of thuggish civilians that followed the Hamas fighters over the border and did terrible things, that wouldn't actually, under international law, uh, justify the killing of other civilians in Gaza. But I think your point is right. From his perspective, uh, all of Gaza is one. They all support Hamas. If they weren't there as fighters, they were cheering the fighters. Uh, I think as outsiders, we're going to be a little skeptical of that. We don't have an opportunity to measure public opinion inside Gaza. There's a substantial chance that they are not 100% behind this attack or Hamas. I mean, some in Israel have tried to argue that the civilians actually are responsible because they elected Hamas in 2006. Um, Although I don't know if that argument really holds water because those elections happened now 17 years ago and about 50% of the Gazan public is uh, under 18. So wouldn't have even had a chance to vote. And also that doesn't include the fact that Many of the Palestinians who voted for Hamas back in 2006 voted because they were fed up with the corruption within the PLO and Fatah. The Israeli president suggested that because the people of Gaza had not overthrown Hamas, they were all culpable, Uh, you know, which makes me wonder, you know, after the second election of George W. Bush, when he was actually quite popular, would, uh, you know, an Iraqi militant have been justified attacking American civilians because they're culpable in the American war in Iraq? I would think not. So I want to talk to you guys more about the history of Hamas and then the relationship between Hamas and the Palestinian public. Um, But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. You were mentioning, you know, sort of Hamas being elected in 2006. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how the organization has changed between now and then. So, I mean, basically, in 2006, Hamas won 74 of 132 seats on the Palestinian Legislative Council, um, which is sort of the parliament of the Palestinian Authority. And there was a brief period where sort of Hamas and Fatah were both involved in the organs of, of Palestinian governance, but that collapsed and Hamas ended up ousting Fatah from the Gaza Strip and taking over full control. So Hamas essentially became a governor But at the same time, they still wanted to be a resistance organization with an armed wing that fights Israel. And that's, you know, in their view, ultimately going to free the Palestinian territories. 
and for many members of Hamas to take over Israel and turn it into one Palestine. Um, so I think Hamas has always sort of struggled between these two ideas. And you can even see that in their their policy documents. Hamas in, in 2017 released this policy document to suggest that there was a replacement to the original Hamas charter, which was full of anti-Semitic tropes, you know, extremely aggressive ones, and also calls to, to obliterate Israel. The new document, I think, really reflected that tension in Hamas between resistance and governance. On the one hand, it called the 1967 borders and having a state on the 1967 borders a national consensus, which many interpreted as, oh, Hamas is now interested in a two-state solution. But it also said that we'll never give up on all of historic Palestine, you know, between the river and the sea. Uh, in any case, that's maybe the most sort of like salient tension that's existed since they took over as governors in 2007 and, and ran for, for parliament in 2006. And it seems like that tension is also evident in your piece, comparing the things that the military leaders are saying versus what um, Marzouk says, like on the subject of hostages, for example. Could you explain sort of how he talks about the Israeli hostages? And is it possible to explain the discrepancy between what he's saying versus, you know, what we've seen the military leaders saying about the hostages? Well, he was very eager to volunteer that they were ready to release all the women, any children they have, the innocent civilians right away, with, as he put it, in exchange for nothing. But he also said, as soon as the bombing stops. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a kind of opening offer in a negotiation right there, that yeah. if Israel would stop the bombing, they would release their hostages. He tried to portray that as magnanimity. Um, uh, as far as what the military had said, uh, a military spokesman within Gaza uh, had made some pretty ugly threats about the killing of civilians if uh, Israel bombed houses without warning. Um, I think it's safe to say that that was an idle threat. This threat even included killing them on video, which would be broadcast to the world, and none of that has happened. Yeah. Interestingly enough, that same spokesperson who's named Abu Obeidah, he hasn't retracted that threat even after, you know, political leaders like Abu Marzouk have come out with their statements. Would you say that leaders within Hamas have different goals or is it really just the same goal but different ways of trying to achieve the same thing? Well, that's that's a big question. You know, I think we could be here all day wrestling with that one. Uh, but in in short, it's a it's probably a, lay, a a set of layered goals. I think in an ideal world, they would prefer that the state of Israel didn't exist. Uh, from time to time, you hear of debates within Hamas about what might be acceptable short of that. What kind of a two state solution? It's always a situation where they remain armed, where there is an armed Palestinian state, uh, and. Uh, in my memory, that's been a deal breaker for the government of Israel. I mean, there definitely are divisions within Hamas. There's what people refer to as the more hardline or militant factions, and and then there are the more moderate factions. And we actually spoke to another individual in our reporting named Ghazi Hamid. He's a member of the Hamas leadership in Gaza, and he's based out of Rafah. And he's definitely advocating for a more moderate approach. And uh, I think he, you know, is someone who will defend the militancy and he was defending the acts of these Hamas fighters in Israel. But I think he's interested in 
trying to find ways to work with Israelis. And he's actually someone who worked very closely with another Israeli named Gershon Baskin to execute the Shalit prisoner swap back in 2011. But there are other factions, another individual named Fethi Hamad, who's a senior Hamas leader based in the Gaza Strip. And he's someone who's made statements in the past saying that Palestinians all around the world should go find Jews and kill them. Um, so there, there are different wings and different approaches, and I think they're always sort of clashing with each other. The folks like Abu Marzouk are more uh, public-facing and diplomatic in, in their language. But, you know, I think it is fair to say that like political parties all around the world, they also have their, their different factions. But it does seem like from a, like a foreign policy perspective that one faction has kind of won out or at least emerged as um, sort of the one that's indicative of the entire group's ideology. Just thinking about how I think in 1997, the U.S. and a bunch of other countries declared Hamas a terrorist organization. I mean, it's interesting to hear that there are all of these um, conflicts within Hamas. Well, we're looking at quite a bit of history here. You know, uh, Israel was active in persuading the U.S. and the countries of Europe to designate Hamas as a terrorist group. Uh, after that, Hamas went on to conduct a number of quite grisly uh, suicide bombings inside Israel and kill a lot of civilians in the early 2000s. They've discontinued that. I think it's fair to say that after the events of October 7th, the hardliners have won out. So to the extent that there were different people inside of Hamas debating what the requirements could be for a potential happy coexistence or at least acceptable coexistence with Israel, uh, that group has lost. They've embraced a violence on a scale that has never been seen before. And that's about the end of that in terms of an internal debate within Hamas about strategy, don't you think, Adam? I mean, definitely for this moment, and I mean, it's possible Israel seems to be going in for this ground invasion. They might try to totally dismantle the ha Hamas leadership, and they've talked about killing all the top leaders and the members of the, the military wing and dismantling their infrastructure. In many ways, there may be no real debate to be had, if, especially if they lose control of Gaza. Um, I think that will leave questions for sort of who will come next in Gaza. Uh, you know, Hamas is an ideology. It's not sort of embodied in specific individuals only. And, you know, Israel's assassinated many of the leaders of Hamas in the past. And there have been other, uh, you know, new manifestations of the movement who have emerged and taken over. So I think there are a lot of questions about what comes next, whether that's a more hardline Islamist group taking over, whether that's Israel reoccupying the Gaza Strip, uh, whether that's Israel and the international community inviting the Palestinian Authority to come back and take over governance, uh, something I imagine the, the PA would be reticent to do following an Israeli military operation. I think a lot of attention is now going to focus on the uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And I think it's reasonable to consider that the current weakness of the Palestinian Authority may in some ways have been a contributing factor to the attack. You know, the Palestinian Authority is a creation of the Oslo Accords uh, in 1993, uh, and it was envisioned as the precursor to a future Palestinian state under a two-state solution. As that has become less and less viable, their reason for existence has gone away. And yet they continued to play the role of kind of policemen for the Israeli occupation and to try to help 
control unrest among the Palestinian population of the West Bank. Uh, that's not great for their legitimacy and their credibility as a representative of the Palestinian people. And these events in Gaza and the escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas as another kind of voice of the Palestinian people, I think might make life even more uncomfortable for the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And it's not hard to imagine that that was considered desirable by the leaders of Hamas who planned this attack. And Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, is 87 years old. He's in the twilight of his career. He's moving more slowly. He's traveling less. He's clearly moving towards the end of his days. I know people said that 10 years ago, but uh, it, it certainly seems to be the case now. And maybe in some ways this is a play for the Palestinian public ahead of Abbas's exit. So you mentioned that much of the Hamas leadership lives abroad, and so they're not necessarily experiencing the siege in Gaza firsthand. Does that make it harder for them to properly represent Palestinians in Gaza? You know, what brings us to mind is that quote from Marzouk about how so many Palestinians in Gaza are willing to die for this cause. Um, when you said that you've talked to people and that's not necessarily the case. You know, I think I hear you asking, are the foreign-based political leaders of Hamas out of touch with the people of Gaza? And I think that might be the wrong way to look at it uh, for two reasons. First, they are Palestinians. They are Gazans. You know, Abu Marzouk is himself the son of refugees who fled uh, in 1948, and his brother, his older brother, was killed in the attack this week. So he's not so far removed from conditions in Gaza. Uh, the second reason is that to the extent that we see a divide or we imagine a divide between the residents of Gaza and the Hamas leadership, it's not a divide between the residents and the foreign leadership. It's a divide between the residents and the most militant leaders. It would be a divide between the leaders and the grassroots, if you know what I mean. So now Hamas is governing in Gaza in the middle of a bombardment um, in which civilians need medical supplies and food and clothing. And I'm wondering how they're, how they're handling this. I mean, what are the people in, in Gaza sort of seeing from Hamas leadership now? So Israel has asked uh, Gazan residents living in the northern part of the Gaza Strip to move to the south and a lot of people have moved. Many have gone to Khan Yunus and to Rafah. Uh, I think there are shortages with food and water. The electricity situation is extremely dire. When you send messages on WhatsApp, usually you have two check marks right away because the message went through. Just about everyone you send a message to in Gaza now has one check mark. And it's something that I've never experienced in all my time reporting on Gaza. You know, Gaza's always dealt with power outages, but the Strip has, in many ways, been been turned dark. And you see people waiting in line at bakeries in Khan Yunus going hundreds of meters back. Uh, people are sheltering at UN facilities in the thousands. I was talking to someone today who said that him and his family got text messages from the Israeli army saying, leave your area. It's no longer safe. So he said his family, part of his family, his sister and others went to um, a U.N. shelter and the rest went to another family member's home where, you know, where they hadn't received such text messages. So it seems like it's a very, very concerning humanitarian crisis that's unfolding. And Adam, you said 
you know, during that answer that this is just sort of unprecedented based on, you know, the reporting you've done before. And David, you've done a lot of reporting in this region as well. And I'm wondering um, what feels different to you about this particular conflict and what we've been seeing. Well, what's different about it, obviously, is the the severity of the crime. The enormity of the killing is uh, qualitatively different from what has gone before. Uh, when you step back from that, you also see a right-wing conservative Israeli government that we've never seen the likes of before, which is more hostile, I think we could say, to a two-state solution than any we've seen in a while. And then when you when you zoom out a little further and you look at the region, you see all the Arab states, which gradually had quietly come to accept working with Israel under the table, it's not under the table anymore. You know, we saw several of the Gulf states make agreements to recognize Israel under the Trump administration. Now Saudi Arabia is more or less openly moving in the same direction. And so if you're a Palestinian leader, you're looking out at a region that once was surrounded by Arab states, which were your sponsors, your friends, your allies, even if only rhetorically, and now no longer. And so if you're a Palestinian leader, as I say, you face on the one hand uh, an obstinate and hostile uh, government of Israel, uh, such as you have not seen in the past, and beyond that, a kind of sense of betrayal by the other Arab states. And so... You know, is there a sense of desperation? Yes, I think there's a sense of desperation. And that's the only way to really understand uh, the enormity of this uh, violence. Did you guys ask Marzouk about, you know, what kind of help Hamas got with this attack? I mean, there have been there's been speculation that Iran was involved. Um, Did he get into that at all? There's been a lot of speculation about the hostilities between Israel and the uh, Lebanese uh, militant group Hezbollah, which is also quite hostile to Israel. Uh, There have been some exchange of rocket fire. So we pressed him about whether he expected more escalation there, that it might turn into a two-front war or a regional conflict. And uh, it, it was interesting. He said, if only, basically. We wish there was a regional war, but no, absolutely not. He expected Hezbollah to abide by its ceasefire with Israel, uh, and that was going to be the end of that. He said that with uh, surprising firmness, I thought. Did you think, Adam? Yeah, he seemed, of all of his answers, he seemed ready and prepared to, 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 to respond to that question, and he said it with uncanny firmness. Like he's talked to Hezbollah, and he knows there's nothing doing. Either that or it's all a ruse. We've talked about what, you know, these events might mean for Hamas. And I'm wondering what you think is going to happen to Netanyahu and his government after all of this. Well, Netanyahu has agreed with the former defense minister, Benny Gantz, who who makes up a big part of the Knesset, his party makes up a big part of the Knesset, to create an emergency time government. And they created a special war cabinet that doesn't include the most extremist elements of the current government. So it seems Netanyahu is is about to um, move forward with the plan to carry out a ground invasion into Gaza. And I think the Israeli public is probably more supportive of this kind of move than they ever have been in the past. But I think the question of what comes next hasn't really been answered. And no Israeli official has clearly stated what their plan for Gaza is. Because if they do go into the Gaza Strip and they take out the entire Hamas leadership and essentially reoccupy the Strip, either Israel is going to have to establish a new administration, a new military administration in Gaza, 
or find another alternative to come in and take over governing. And it's not easy. They know the alternative might be worse. Uh, Islamic Jihad is an even more hardline Islamist group that's organized in the Gaza Strip. There are even more radical fundamentalist Islamists who've targeted Hamas uh, and its own governing institutions. You know, it's a little bit paradoxical. I think Netanyahu today has a more stable governing coalition, at least for the moment, than he did before. He's moved into a unity government, so in a sense he's embraced his opponents, but he's been able to cooperate with his more moderate opponents and thereby be less reliant on his far-right opponents. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm not in Israel uh, talking to people there, but I read that a number of Israelis are wondering uh, what went wrong uh, and whether or not some of the blame for that um, might fall on the Netanyahu government. So uh, longer term, whether he comes out of this stronger or weaker, I think remains to be seen. Great. Well, thank you so much. David Kirkpatrick is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and Adam Rasgon is a member of The New Yorker's editorial staff. You can read their piece, What Was Hamas Thinking?, online now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>